Hello, everyone. This is Joel Johnson for another Rainmaker Evolution podcast. Before we get started, just remember anything that we talk about here, do not implement it in your business without checking with your compliance department. This is meant to be internal only amongst those of us that are financial advisors and that own financial advisor businesses. With that said, uh, I'm really excited today. I've got my friend David Hollander from California with us on the podcast. We're going to go into all things business, and uh, he's got a pretty amazing business, a a uh, well-diversified, I should say, business, not just financial advisory, but some other areas and some some nuances of the financial advisory slash broker-dealer business that most of us um, not, are not involved in. So I'm real excited to have you here, David. How are you doing today? Hey, I'm great, Joel. Thanks. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. I thought we would just start by, you know, saying who who is David Hollander? What Tell us about yourself, about your business, about your family, and so on. Sure. Um, so I'm a dad. I got two, two daughters. Um, one's just finished college. The other one's in college. Uh, my wife uh, is an attorney like me. She uh, is very involved in the practice, has been since... Um, I'd say 2007, eight, when the girls started going to school full time, and uh, we we basically developed a practice where it's a we have our own broker dealer, we have our own RIA, um, been with many of the FMOs, um, and have an insurance uh, practice. So we do long term care, life, um, fixed annuities. Um, Pretty much every type of security you can imagine. We've done private placements. We've done. I've actually sponsored some. Um, been involved in them uh, over the years. Uh, we have a tax practice, so I have a CPA on staff with an enrolled agent as an assistant. Uh, and then we have a estate planning law firm where um, my wife and I, and then a couple other attorneys here, do uh, wills, trust, probate, um, long-term care, Medicaid, Medi-Cal in California, as it's known. Um, we lobby here in Sacramento quite a bit, um, been involved in lots of legislation around our industry. Um, and I run, uh, not only an independent firm, I'd call it, but also, uh, a practice internally here in Oakland that, uh, that I've been building with, with your help actually. So, um, it's been, it's been quite an interesting ride and every day it's, is uh, is a new challenge. <laughs> so, so well, I tell you that, that sounds that that sounds like a pretty big complex business i think when a lot of guys hear that um at least for me david it sounds like you've got a lot of moving parts there and it almost sounds like one of those things where some of us would be uh including myself some of us would hear that and say my goodness that's that's a pretty big operation how in the world could i ever build something like that so take us back 10 years tell us what did the business look like 10 years ago what were you doing what kind of activities client base and so on Sure. So 10 years ago, I uh, actually um, was doing a similar type of business, but not, not the same sort of volumes. We weren't just, we weren't doing the amount of volume we're, we've been doing, I'd say the last probably three to four years. And primarily that had to do with uh, our marketing. Our marketing back then was uh, seminars. And so we would do client facing seminars, probably uh, two a month, you know, off one mailing, one mailing, did, doing, doing two events. Um, and about 10 years ago is when I started the, into the radio. Uh, and I was lucky enough to get on a major station here in the Bay Area that, that really hadn't tapped um, the talk uh, finance area. It was all sports. And, um, and I also lucked out in that that was the year the Giants 
won the World Series and had that nice run there. So I was part of all of that, which was which was great. And so our marketing literally and the amount of leads we saw just exploded. And so my problem became I just couldn't keep up with the amount of leads that we had. And I was making more money and getting busier and hiring more people, but I just wasn't really able to stay on top of it. So I, and I still to this day have this problem of finding talent. I think my number one problem is talent. And um, it's just, it's difficult. And I don't know if it's California, if it's Oakland or what it is, but um, coming to your events and talking to other people, uh, I seem to have had every possible thing that could happen to me happen. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so I consider myself, you know, not not fortunate in that way, but it, but we do work through those things, and uh, and it's just challenging. So um, back then, you know, we were, we were operating out of about 2,200 feet. Um, we had probably uh, 10 to 12 people in our office, and then I had at that time um, maybe 30 reps who were also uh, independent reps, so more like an LPL type model that we were building, and they had their own offices. Uh, since that time, um, you know, I, I basically had a lot more asset flow come in. Uh, I call it more proprietary where I'm, I'm handing the lead to the rep and then the rep is building a book and I've had reps who have left and stolen accounts from me. Um, and I've had some that have stayed. So, um, it's just a matter of, you know, how you classify that. But at this point, um, it looks, it looks a lot different, our practice here in the, in the office, because now we're in 9,000 feet as opposed to 2,500 feet. And, and it's, um, it's it's growing every day in terms of what we're doing and how we're doing it and how I'm thinking about it. So it's changed a lot. Let's put it that so, way. so tell me what it looks like. Give us some perspective. So 10 years ago, 10 to 12 employees, 2,200 square feet. What does it look like today? Uh, so today, today it looks like we, we retained some of the outside reps, if you will. Um, we've got a Mountain View office, a Sacramento, uh, and a San Francisco. They, they were more of our higher producing independents. So the independents are paid typically around 85 to 90%. They have their own staff. They do their own thing. What, and, what are you doing? So we, <clears throat> what are you doing for them, David? Well, we clear for them. So we're their broker okay. dealer, their RA, and then compliance. So everything runs up through us. And then we pay them out on the on the, the grid based on their production. But they basically are independent. They do their own thing. So there's nothing much beyond the compliance and the processing of the business that, that we really do for them because they just don't need it. They don't want it. They have their own businesses. But and you um, kept, I would say you, they're, they're independent. Okay. So you kept them. It doesn't sound like you kept everybody from the old model. It sounds right. like you kept some That's of the higher, right. better business people. Okay. Yeah, we did. We we basically looked at all the reps and how much they were burning my staff here and uh, what it was costing us to essentially service them. And we just decided, hey, we're going to either uh, make it more expensive for the, for those people so they, they will stay or or they won't. And if they don't, that's okay because it's just costing us too much money. So so that's what we've been doing the last say, year, year and a half. And now we're down to the three offices we have and we think we have a decent relationship with them and things seem to be at least profitable from that standpoint, which before, and I got to say one of the biggest challenges is just looking at the economics of, of the business because I built, like I said, a nice book. I've got a great book. It, it cranks out a, a decent amount of money. Um, but the bottom line is uh, if you're trying to build a business, you know, either you're going to support that business with your book or you're going to hope that the business can support itself. Right. And unless you really right. understand those numbers, 
well, you have no idea what's going on. And I, and I got to say, honestly, that's the way it's been for me for at least the last five, six years. I just really didn't know economically what was going, except for the fact that it was costing me more and more money. Hmm. So, so let me just make sure I got this right. So now you have about, you have three different offices with independents. How many independents again? So in each uh, office, Let's call it uh, two to three people, so probably nine, nine okay. reps total that are independent that don't, again, that roll up independently, but not don't have a lot more to do with us than that. Okay, so that so that's one piece of the business. So let's talk about another piece of the business now. Well, so you've got the insurance agency. Is the insurance agency and the your um, let's call it proprietary investment business, not the independent reps, but what you more control. Do those operate, like in our business, David, they operate really side by side. To a client, they don't really see a difference. They see it all as sort of one big chunk, which is Johnson Brunetti. Is that how you guys are set up or is there definitely a division? And I don't mean from a compliance or legal standpoint, but is there in the client's eyes a division between the insurance piece and the investment piece? No, there's not. Okay. Okay. So then what does the rest of the firm look like? So then the, the Oakland branch where, where I'd say most of, um, which is which is much more like what I've seen with Rainmaker, is that we've got uh, reps that are here that I've basically trained that I give leads to, uh, and then they produce. And either they manage those books, which is the way it's been for probably the last eight years, where they actually manage the book that I give them, and they continue to get new leads and they get a certain payout. Uh, on that business or um, they're producing and then they're done. And then we have a planning team now that then will, will nurture that relationship and the, and the closer as you will is, is gone. They're out of the relationship. So that's what it's starting to look like now. Um, and so I'm in a position to think about, you know, what do I do with the existing book and do we, do we kind of mix that up periodically so we don't run the risk of, of um, losing any of those clients. Yeah, we've been we've been thinking and dealing with that a lot here, which is a lot of times the guys that are good at bringing in the client and are driven by that. You know, they're kind of driven by the hunt. They really lose interest. Um, some of them, not all of them, but they really kind of lose interest when it's time to service the client and be there for the phone call. Absolutely. It take 20 minutes yep. and so Absolutely. on. So, mm-hmm. yeah, we've been thinking a lot about separating that out and making it so – you know, both parties can make a good amount of money because we want to keep them. Um, but at the same time, we want to do the right thing for the client. And it doesn't do you any good to bring on 100 clients a year if you're losing 50 that you brought on two or three years ago. Absolutely. No question. Yep. So um, so then how many how many staff people do you have now? Count, count, not counting so the here, independent here, reps? Not, well, here in Oakland, we have 30. Uh, and of okay. the 30, it breaks down. There's the two CPAs. Um, there's the four attorneys. There's a paralegal. Uh, we have five or six registered reps, and then the rest would be support people. Okay. The support people that deal with the investment people, are they licensed or are they more just pure support? So the way I broke that up is we've got a planning team. So I've got two people on the planning team that are licensed that will do the planning. They, they do the e-monies. They do the risk alizes. They, they'll take client meetings. Um, they're trying to bring in new assets from existing assets. So adding new assets that may be out there at the banks or other brokerages, they get comp to percentage if they do that. Um, 
and and you know they're there to basically service and and provide planning and then we have a service group which is just a bunch of um, assistants and i just did that recently where each rep uh, who was doing well i would give them their own assistant uh, and, and they were in offices and i found that these little teams were developing that wasn't really necessarily healthy as for the organization and, and clients were starting to suffer just because someone would be sick and so then wouldn't wouldn't get picked up so now what we did is we opened up uh, an area in the in the building where it's just a big pit, kind of like what you guys have. And uh, I put the the head of operations in there, Tony, uh, and then uh, four other people who who are in, who were assistants who are now in this service pool, if you will. And so when a call comes in, uh, each day they have a priority of what they're trying to do in terms of opening accounts um, or dealing with certain clients who are, you know, the higher net worth type clients. Uh, and then if anything flows over, then who's ever available will jump on it. And so by the end of the day, hopefully everything that's come in is being taken care of when it comes to doing an ACAT or, or, or a uh, new account opening or something like that. Sure. The um, So in this model where, uh, let's say I'm working for you and I'm the guy bringing in the client. So I bring in the new client, I get compensated for bringing in the new client, and then that client gets passed off and let's say a year from today that the service team or I don't know if I'm calling it the service team, but the person that's registered brings in new assets and I don't have anything to do with the that. planner. I call the planner. The, okay. The planner brings in new assets. Does the original rep that got the client get compensated in that situation? Uh, it hasn't happened yet, but in theory, yes. <laughs> in theory, yes. They would still get a little piece. Yes. So the so One the time. planner so this this structure with the planners meeting with uh, reviews and so on is fairly new with you guys. Yes, it is. Okay. Well, we'll look forward to you this know, year. Up. It started this year. Let's say. That. Okay. So, <clears throat> it started this year, and I'll just say I did I did bring in a fellow um, from Merrill Lynch who was a CFP and seemed like it would go great, and it just didn't. So um, so he got fired, um, unfortunately. But um, the other guys who have homegrown seem to be doing much better. So it's Good. just interesting again finding talent and how that works out. Yeah, I mean, you just you know sidebar on that. I mean, that's what it's all about now for us is just finding the talent and continually upgrading the talent, right? So we might have somebody yes. that was yeah. phenomenal five years ago, and we've just outgrown them. And as sad as that is to say, you know, that just happens. And um, yeah. Yep. You know, so we just try to make every hire better than the next. And now it's to the point where, you know, I've been asking myself over the last few years, should I even be the CEO of this organization or should I sit back and be yeah. kind of the creative guy? I mean, I remember when Bill Gates, you know, was running Microsoft or he was co-CEO or whatever he was with Ballmer. But I just remember hearing him on an interview saying, I'm not having the fun I used to have. I used to have fun solving problems and being creative. And now I'm sucked into this behemoth that has become its own entity and, and yeah, and I, I, and, that... and I could I could speak to that. I mean, I, I literally have hired uh, over the last three years uh, three different CEO president type people. So we're on our third right now. And yes, it does free you up a lot. And I and like you, I want to have more fun. I want to drive cars. I want to do my show. I want to talk to my high network clients. I mean, that's kind of what I want to do. And I keep getting sucked into this other stuff. So um, I, I've been working hard to find someone who is, you know, who is good at that sort of stuff that I don't want to deal with. And so that's a per person we have now who's been so here about you, a year now. So so you brought in three, but I, I assume they're not all three. They're like, they're the two of them are they gone, fired. correct? Yeah. yeah, they're gone. So yeah, I just keep cycling through. So. so this might be something interesting to talk about. What 
what are the challenges in bringing somebody in from the outside to be a CEO? Well, first and foremost, um, everyone sounds great, you know, because usually you're hiring a headhunter and the headhunter's job is to find you the person that you've described you want, that can do the skills you want. And, and of course, they get paid when they bring you somebody. So they, that person starts, they get paid. You know, if they, if, if they stick for 60 days, then, then you eat it, right? Um, but I don't think you can really find out whether they're good or not, probably for six months to seven months, particularly in that kind of role, because there's so much they need to get up to speed on. And so I would say, uh, unfortunately for the people that I, that I hired and came in, um, you know, what didn't work out, they just, they had represented things that weren't necessarily a hundred percent accurate. And so as you get into it with them, um, you can see that maybe they had experience in, in a particular area, but it really wasn't deep enough. I'll give an example like insurance, like maybe they said, sure, I understand insurance, I'm licensed, but they don't know the first thing about an, an FIUL policy or how it works or why you would use it. So, uh, or how it gets paid out in terms of commissions and overrides and those sort of things. So, um, you know, you, you expect that person to know what you know and that they're going to run it the way you would run it and make sure you're getting getting everything you're, you're deserving. And you find out, you know, four or five months into it, well, they have no clue. And so then so then it's really, you know, I look back to, well, it's my fault because I'm the person who's supposed to, to make sure that, that they're doing what I want them to do. And so I find that the process has been not only, first of all, making sure that you get along well with the person, but also that they can take criticism um, and 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 work well, you know, with you when you when you say, hey, look, and just depends on your style. I mean, I'm I'm pretty matter of fact. So if something comes up, I'm just going to say it. I don't necessarily think, oh, I maybe shouldn't say it that way. But um, sometimes people's feelings get hurt if you're that way. So you need to be pretty transparent to them about how you are when you hire them, and hopefully they're okay with that. Um, but if they're not, then don't hire them <laughs> because. Because again, these people are here to support you and help you, and if and if they're not helping you, they're they're becoming a problem, and then they may end up suing you. So, you know, all these things are uh, are tough in business, and so I'd say I've learned a lot about um, the type of person I want, first of all, and then secondly, just their skills and and what they bring to the table, and then it's very important that I think you check in with them at least weekly just to see what they're doing and, and it makes sure it aligns with what you want them to be doing and that you're seeing results that you want to see. And if you're not, then you really need to dig in there a little bit more and it's going to take some time. It's not, it's not easy. It's not going to happen overnight, but I think once you've spent the time and you got the right person or persons in the different roles, it should start seeing positive results. And I think that's, you know, what we're all looking for. And, and again, I'm also never going to expect 10 out of 10. I think if you get someone who can do, you know, eight out of 10, it's, it's pretty good. So I've, I've learned to back off on that because I tend to be really hard on myself and that used to transpire into other people. So I realized not everyone's me and I just have to step back and say, okay, look, they, they got most of it done. Everything's okay. You know, move on. So how did the staff, I assume you had some long-term staff, right? You, people yeah. have been with you for a while. How, how were they, how did they respond to you bringing in somebody from the outside and giving them this major, major role in the company? Not well. Uh, in fact, we had um, lots of people leave. We had secret groups behind the scenes um, building, uh, you know, uh, ideas into other people's heads that would get back to me. So it was it was really, it's it's been very challenging, I must say. I mean, going from a small shop, family-oriented to now, and I don't want to say institution because we're not, we're not that big. I mean, it's, but you, you deal with these issues that are just like, give me a break. I mean, what, what's going on here? You know? So it just hasn't been 
easy, but I think the most important thing that I've learned is if that person is doing that role, you got to let them do the role and you can't, you can't micromanage them and you can't override them when they say, look, it's going to be this way to so-and-so, even if it's one of your biggest producers, you're going to have to say, Hey, that's just the way it is. I'm sorry. And either they're on board with you or, or they're not meaning the, the producer or the planners, right. or whoever's complaining. So of your business, I don't know how much you want to talk about the size and so on. Can you give us kind of an idea of the, the breakdown and maybe the size, if you feel comfortable, of the RIA versus the insurance agency versus the broker-dealer piece? Yeah, you know, I know, I know, and, I, and I'm very envious of your, um, your sales force and the numbers you bring to the table because you know, I know you know. Um, I must say I've gotten to a point where, and again, I've had uh, four different CFOs. Um, and, and I'll just tell you that the ones I have right now who've been on board, maybe, uh, two and a half months now, it's the first time I'm starting to get data that I, that I'd like to see like ROI stuff, um, and how we're doing economically. So all I've really been tracking is my production. So I can only really speak to my production. Um, you know, my goal has been, uh, to do a hundred million of AUM per year. And so I've, consistently done that now the last three years I'm on track again to do it this year so as long as I'm doing my hundred million I'm fine I mean that's that's where where, where my goals have been so um, so I, I am doing that um, when you say AUM is that nowhere. when you say AUM is that in managed accounts or is that well it's a so I, the way I do it when I bring money into fidelity and let's say some will go out to uh, annuities or to life uh, I'm just tracking the AUM. So I don't really, okay. I used to in the okay. old days, look at, you know, how much did I do with life? How much did I, in fact, when I got nominated for um, that senior market advisor back in 08 as one of the top advisors, um, they looked at life. They looked at a new, they looked at AUM. Um, I don't do that anymore. Now I just, now I just look at one of the metrics I look at is AUM. How many assets under management are you bringing in per year? And then whatever you do with that, fine. But, but it's easier to track that way because it all goes to fidelity. Well, it's probably a better focus, too, to get your people in that culture versus how much annuity production did I do, right? Because then they can be a little, you know, in our company, yeah, we focus I mean, too much on one yeah. product, and then you're going you're gonna to start steering business towards that product, and we don't want to do that. We want to do the right thing for the client. Absolutely. So what do you think's going to – what are things going to look like three years from now? If you could just, you know, take out the magic wand and paint the picture of what things are going to look like three years from now, what does that look like? Well, I, I, what I would like to see would be a, a real nice uh, service team that everyone's happy and working together and it's running super smooth. Um, uh, you know, the planning team, again, uh, probably triple the size it is now. And, and again, in another area of the building, I'm going to put them in another kind of pit area as opposed to right now they're in a kind of an outer door pit area. But I'm going to put them more with, a, uh, I guess, a, just a nicer group set up. Um, and then uh, I'd say having at least five to six, you know, good producers that are out there just uh, doing big numbers, 50, 60 million a year. I mean, that, that would be just fine. I mean, for me, that would, that would be great. Same amount of offices that you have now? Because you have, you have the Oakland office, but then you've got a couple satellites or are the satellites all independent reps? So the satellites right now are independent reps. Okay. If if we the Bay Area is so big that if we see someone say in Walnut Creek or say I'm going I'm driving down to Mountain View, I'll use my Mountain View office even though they're independent. But then I'll have clients come in and see me there, or if they're new prospects, I'll see them there. Um, and so that that's that's how we do the Bay Area. We're about to open up in Orange County, so um, that will be a brand new office. And so I've talked to you know you and some other people in our group about 
a budget and how you would do that with seminars and so forth. And so that that's our plan down there. So that that's going to start in May next year. Why well, um, Orange County? Is there a kind of just for those of the, the people that don't know? So uh, David's up in the San Francisco Bay area. Uh, Oakland is, of course, just across the bay from San Francisco. Orange County is about 400 miles south. Um, it's you could call it a suburb of L.A. People out there don't think of it that way, but it, it's part of the huge L.A. area. And so, so you're opening in a great area, by the way, demographically a phenomenal area as far as yeah. average income and average net worth and, and so on. So what, what made you decide Orange County? So my mom retired there in 86. And uh, as my kids were growing up, we'd go down and see mom you know, every year. Um, and so I have a real affinity to the area. And then again, in 2009, I bought a house down there when the whole market went to, went to hell in a handbasket. Um, was able to get a nice property for a really reasonable price. So, um, so that, so just the fact that we've been down there a lot and know the area pretty well, and I plan on spending a lot more time down there now that my girls are out of the house. Um, and my daughter's actually at USC, so, uh, so that also helps. Um, but anyway, that's so that's part of the reason. So, so that, but then also I've got a couple new producers who want to be in Orange County. Uh, that's where they want to live. So. Um, so we're just, and I've got an office already lined up, and we're just going to go ahead and do it. So, great. So, getting back just for a second to the three-year, um, you know, looking out three years. So it sounds like you yeah. still want to continue to improve this service structure, this support structure for the advisors, because that's the first thing you said, which I think for a lot of us is instructive because we spend so much time in this business, or the danger I think in this business is. We spend so much time on on the production and selling more premium or bringing more assets under management that, at least from what I've observed, there seems to be this lack of importance placed on servicing clients and having that infrastructure. Because let's face it, salespeople, if they're really good salespeople, they're really not. I mean, this whole conversation, David, has been really about structuring a business more than it's been about, hey, what words do you say in an appointment? which I think is a great focus for people to be paying attention to because most of us in this business are not good at that. If we've fallen short in an area, it's customer service, and we still think we're pretty good. We're much better than average. But if you looked at, you know, I got a guy, we talked about cars. You know, I got a guy that does my car stuff, you know, high-end car racing-type vehicles and so on and so forth. Yeah, He spends, you know, it's so customer service-oriented, and – you know, I don't want anybody to have my cell phone, but I can text him on a Sunday afternoon and he gets right back to me. And it's just so service driven. And his whole shop is that way. And I think we fall a little short in this business, not just with the focus, but also having that internal structure and the culture to be there for the client and solve that problem by the end of the day, like you said. Absolutely. I think I think you're absolutely right. And I think it's it's somewhat counterintuitive because if you're a good salesperson, which I know you and I are, um, you're built and wired a different way than a service person. And so it's kind of hard for us to, <laughs> to relate to that in some respect, and we're just not necessarily good at it. So that's why it's important to find people who are and who can support you and help you build that and grow it the right way. Because once you get to a certain size of AUM, uh, and I know we're over a billion now in AUM, the, um, the, uh, the, that's very important because you can keep, you can keep building and marketing and having all these leads come in, which we do. But at the end of the day, if you can't service what you have, plus what's coming in, like you said, you're going to lose half that book regularly to your competitors. So 
So if you look back to when you start, when did you start in this business? And and I guess that's kind of I tricky because you're, you're in a, okay. When you start, you started as an attorney or did you come right out of the gates with this holistic financial planning piece? No. Yeah. So how it started was I, I, I was in law school. I was working at a law firm. I was in LA. I just had taken the bar. I had a job at a law firm. Uh, I was an associate attorney. Um, I was doing um, plaintiff litigation on medical devices. So it was real focused on uh, a particular area of, of uh, the practice and it was interesting. Um, but I was working a heck of a lot of hours and my wife and I decided uh, right after the earthquake there in LA to, to move to the Bay Area because we had both gone to Berkeley. So we decided to come back and raise our family. So this is the Northridge Quake? This is the Northridge Quake, yeah. like way back. In yeah, the we woke okay. up. Well, yeah, wow. we woke up in the middle of the night and just got just rocked. And so we just thought, you know, <laughs> not that there's not quakes <laughs> in the Bay Area because we were in the '89 one up here when that went, when that happened. Um, but it was just a, it was a lifestyle. We liked the Bay Area better for a family than than the LA area. That was the choice we made back then. So. So we moved up and she got a job at a law firm and I was uh, looking for another law job. But then someone talked to me about um, the financial business and and had talked to me about working at Smith Barney. So they were one of my friends got me a job and I went to the training in Hartford, Connecticut, because they were owned by travelers at that time and um, then to New York. And uh, it was a great training. It was really interesting but then i went back to san francisco and started cold calling and i i cold called for two years um to build my business so that's and then i moved from smith barney to merrill lynch and when i was at merrill lynch merrill lynch started a trust company uh in our building and i got to know the trust officer real well and they had a contest uh one quarter to see how many um Successor trustees, you could sign up, meaning if they had a living trust, uh, getting your client to put Merrill Lynch as a successor trustee. So my wife was doing some estate planning at her firm, and uh, it was real easy for me to win that contest. Let's just say that. So, so, so I had done well with that. And through that process, I thought, you know, it just kind of makes sense to have an attorney uh, and a financial person working together because there's so many issues that overlap. And so we were talking about having a family at that point, and for some reason, um, once my wife was pregnant, we decided let's just leave our jobs and start a new business. <laughs> so, so that's what we did, and um, and never looked back. Might as well change so, everything. So at, might as well, might as well change everything at the yeah. same time, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, so when you generate new clients today, are you leading with the estate planning piece? We lead with anything. So we literally, we will lead with estate planning. We'll lead with tax. We'll lead with finance. I mean, it, it doesn't matter. We just lead. And when they come in, um, we ask for their trust. We ask for their tax return. We ask for all their financial statements. And we're looking over all of those things. And if we see something that we don't like, then there's a conversation with the client. So when the, when the comes in and say it's a trust, I'm licensed to see all of it. So I will. But if, let's say, it's one of my planners and he's not a lawyer, then he's going to throw it over to Monica, who is the lawyer, and then she's going to look at it or Sheila will look at it. Um, and then if they see something, they'll drop in the conference room and say, hey, you know, we see this on on your trust. You might want to fix that. And same with the tax. The tax 
people look at the returns and they'll bring up issues and they'll drop in the meeting as well. So somebody could become a client of your firm just doing the trust and then they might you might not get the investment assets for another year or two? Maybe. I'd say early on we used to do it that way, but I don't like to do that anymore. We just don't have the bandwidth. So I'll tell them, look, if you want to use us, we're going to want to see two or three of three of the services just because it's economically more viable. If if they just want the tax, no. If they want the law, maybe. Depends how big the estate is. I had a guy yesterday walking at $100 million in real estate. Um, and, you know, I just had to tell him, look, you pay me this, this retainer and I'll help you. And he had, he had a $4 million investment account too. So you, sure, I'm going to go after that if he comes in the door. But it's not... It's not important to me at this point because I'm looking at the whole relationship. I don't, and with this guy, I don't want just that piece of it. So that's, what do you that's consider, how we'll look at things. What do you consider high net worth for a client? For me, for me, fifteen million plus is what I would consider in my ballpark of higher net worth and, and of the clients I'm going to service. And do you feel like your structure is adequate to give them the level of service that they get from? you know, J.P. Morgan Private Client Group or Bessemer Trust or somebody like that? I think it's better. Okay. That's good to know because I'm a little intimidated to start operating in that area, wondering if we have the talent and the breadth or if I can hire the talent and the breadth and attract them to this company to be able to service those clients because that's something we've never done in this area. And I, Actually, I just, I don't know if you know Charlie Shell, but uh, he's a pretty big deal at AE also. He just flew through with his wife yesterday and we we're talking about that, you know, setting up a private client group and should we brand it the same as the other firm? And then how do I hire attorneys and CPAs and so on to, to provide that full solution? If I wanted to hire a, an attorney to begin an estate planning practice and bring all that in-house and marry it to the money management practice, what would I have to pay that person, David? In, in, well, legally, in food, I, not legally in, I don't think you can do it. <laughs> okay. So that in California, you couldn't do it. In California, you'd have to be an attorney yourself to make money off of that business. So they would have to be a separate, they'd have to be their own business, right? Well, so for me, uh, owning the law firm, uh, any revenue that flows off of that, I can receive that revenue because I'm an attorney. But if I wasn't an attorney, I couldn't own our law firm. But can an attorney run their own practice? Down the within hall? your within your yeah. business, sure, and then they could pay you rent or pay you marketing, pay things like that, sure. And can we share clients? Can they? Can we cross refer people? In California, as long as it's disclosed properly, so we have all these written disclosures that that we that we put in front of people to make sure it's very clear with the relationship. Yeah, I mean, as long as you're doing it right, then then yeah. But again, I, I you know, as you know, we've had different meetings, and I've heard things, and I say, hey, wait. <laughs> Yeah, no, I know. know. In California, <laughs> that's not that's not going to fly. But right, there's a lot I, of I know this because I've had I've had every regulator in here you can imagine. So I, I know what 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 things need to be. So it's important you know that and that you do it right, so you don't have problems because you will have problems. So when you get, let me when ask. You get bigger. L- let me phrase this a different way and tell me if I'm in the right ballpark here. In order to compete for that ten million dollar plus fifteen million dollar plus client. I need to, if I'm going to operate in that market, I need to service all their needs, tax, estate planning, and investments. Is that correct? Yes. I'm going to lose the client, or I'm going to lose the client? Yeah, that's what I thought. Okay, good. Um, So wrapping it up here a little bit, if you had to go back and 
give yourself advice when you left, you know, when you moved your family up to San Francisco and you and your wife said, let's just start our own business. If you had to go back and talk to that person that did that, what kind of advice would you give them? Don't have partners unless it's your wife that you deeply love and you know you'll be with forever. Um, be careful about the people you hire. Maybe spend a little bit more time and diligence on those people that you hire and make sure that they're a good fit. And then when you have people, um, don't necessarily listen to your support people about whether you hire or fire them. Really, really think about it before you fire people. Um, I may have been a little bit quick to do that. So, Interesting. Anything else you want us to know? This is this has been awesome. I think this will really help um, a lot of people out there, David, because it's been different. It's been very different from some of the other podcasts as far as the depth of, of knowledge and the experience that you have that a lot of us don't have as far as the legal and the tax and just your structure and so on. Is there anything else that, um, you know, thinking back on the Rainmaker groups and who's in them that you think would be helpful? Yeah, I, you know, I, I think overall, I would just say that we're in a we're in a really great industry, and that everyone who I've met or who's involved in this industry, from a production standpoint, running your own company, you, you're just extremely lucky in that you have the potential to make a lot of money and to help a lot of people and to do a lot of good in the world, and that's that's just awesome. But you also have. Um, you're also going to jump into a, a deep pool that unless you really slow down a little bit, um, you're going to get into trouble. And so I would just say that just always, because uh, the best are always go, go, go. And I understand that. That's kind of how I'm wired. But I would just say, you know, if you have a spouse, you have someone who can be your break, you know, just take, 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 a, take, a, <laughs> take some time every now and then to check in and just say, hey, uh, am I really making sure I'm doing this right? And, and just, you know, spend the time so you, so you don't have a problem down the road. Great. Awesome advice. All right. Hey, David, thank you. I appreciate it. Um, I think this will help a lot of people, and I look forward to seeing you next year. You or, or maybe right, before that. Maybe, maybe we'll drive some cars before that. <laughs> yeah, you bet. Okay. 